Here's Tua stepping back, loads up, looks long, throws, end zone, touchdown, touchdown Alabama, Devontae Smith, touchdown Alabama, and the Crimson Tide has once again ascended to the top of the college football mountain, their fifth national championship in nine years, their 17th overall, and for coach Nick Saban, a career sixth national championship a number matched only by the legendary paul bear bryant alabama is back as the champion of college football how about that the sound of eli gold calling the game-winning touchdown for alabama on monday night in the national championship game heard on the crimson tide sports network from learfield what a way to start this podcast a conversation with the voice of the crimson tide eli gold glad to welcome you to the roger hoover podcast it's available on itunes soundcloud and stitcher and the roger hoover podcast is proud to be part of the river city rogue podcast network for the best local blogs vlogs and podcasts on sports culture and entertainment head Head to rivercityrogue.com. Bold views from the bold city and beyond. Hello everybody, I'm Roger Hoover and welcome to this episode of the Roger Hoover Podcast. I'm recording this on Friday, January 12th, 2018 from the Tuscaloosa, Alabama studios of the podcast and I hope everyone's doing well. It has been a very exciting week here in Tuscaloosa with the Crimson Tide winning the national championship on Monday night. You heard Eli's great call at the very beginning of the podcast and coming up in just a few minutes you will hear my extended conversation with Eli gold not only about the touchdown call and his time as the voice of the Crimson Tide but just the journey he's had going from a kid in New York City who was a peanut vendor in Madison Square Garden becoming one of the most beloved college football voices that this country has ever had so it's a remarkable story with Eli Gold and we will share that with you coming up in a few moments. Well, this campus is completely buzzing uh, still with the victory for Alabama on Monday night, and uh, I've talked to a lot of people around the program and people that are diehard Alabama fans, and the one thing they keep saying to me is that this championship and this championship game is really their favorite, just based on the way that Alabama had to come from behind in the game, but also you got to see Nick Saban make a quarterback change going from Jalen Hurts, who I've been a huge fan of ever since I've watched him play for the Crimson Tide. I think he's a dynamic playmaker. wish things would have turned out differently for him, but can't complain with the job that Tua Tungavailoa did coming in and helping the Crimson Tide earn that national championship. And it's an amazing stretch of plays and the end of the game with Papanastos missing what would have been the game winning and the championship winning field goal. Get into overtime, tied defense, led by now Tennessee head coach Jeremy Pruitt. They hold Georgia to a field goal. Alabama gets the ball and then loses 16 yards on that first play. You think it's completely over for the Crimson Tide because field goals have been tough to come by for the Tide in the game. Now you backed up even more, but Crimson Tide able to get it done on the very next play with Tunga Vailoa connecting with Devontae Smith for 41-yard touchdown, setting off a huge celebration in Atlanta and, again, the 17th national championship for the Crimson Tide, fifth in the last nine years, and also Nick Saban. 
now with six national championships on his resume, one at LSU, five with Alabama, and he's now even with Paul Bear Bryant. And I have a feeling that Nick Saban will not be even with him for very long, uh, especially based on what Alabama has coming back next season, not guaranteeing a national championship or anything, but uh, I think he's in tremendous shape in the next three or four years to gain at least one or two more, maybe three, national titles with the way things are going. So uh, really exciting to see. And it's a second time that Alabama has won the national championship in football while I've been the women's basketball broadcaster here, and it's just very special to uh, be in Tuscaloosa this time as it happens and uh, get to see all the different celebrations and just see the happiness on a lot of people's faces. Uh, Really excited for this championship. Probably no one as happy as Eli Gold. What a week he has had as the voice of the Crimson Tide. Uh, Eli is a tremendous broadcaster. Uh, You'll hear that in his voice. He has, I think, one of the best voices in all of broadcasting, uh, especially in collegiate sports. And he has a tremendous passion for storytelling as well. And that's what I love so much about the conversation you're about to hear is that Eli was really able to share a lot of the very unique stories that got him to a place that he is now, and he's somebody I look up to a lot uh, in sportscasting. I really enjoy listening to his calls of Alabama football games, and it's been fun to be around him as well in his role at the SEC Network and getting to see him call other sports that you wouldn't expect him to call at times, but he's approached everything with remarkable workmanship, and I also really admire the way that he has worked hard this season. He's not only doing Alabama football like you'll hear about in this interview, but as he also touches on, you know, he's freelancing, so his work with the SEC Network and taking as many different assignments as he can, even doing some minor league hockey for the Birmingham Bulls as his career in another way kind of comes back full circle because hockey is originally what brought him to Birmingham many years ago. But he's been a tremendous resource. He's been somebody I have enjoyed catching up with before a lot of Alabama women's basketball games, and I'm very honored he had the time to sit down with me yesterday at Coleman Coliseum well before Alabama played LSU, and uh, Eli, I didn't realize just how busy he had been, but this was interview number 20 or 25 that he had had, and even once we ended this interview... He had another interview with a Huntsville television station, so I really appreciate all the time he gave me during this interview, and I think you'll really enjoy hearing from the voice of the Crimson Tide, Eli Gold. All right, so this is national championship number five for the Tide in this past nine years, but for you, is this number six Number six, yes. Uh, That included, of course, the 1992 national championship which uh, Gene Stallings team won so yeah it's been remarkable it's been uh, you know I've I've done so I've been blessed to do so many national championship games and only once did I come out on the wrong side of the scoreboard and then that was at the very last second so uh, but boy I'll tell you somebody asked me the other day said does this stuff ever get old I said are you kidding me are you kidding me I said what's to get old you know it's the last day of the season and you're still working and your team's playing for the title there's nothing like it. Is there a comfort that's come with all the different appearances and all the different playoff games that you've gained throughout the years for games like this? I guess so. To some degree, you know what to expect. You know the demands on your time. Uh, and quite honestly, and people you know, people tell me differently from their experiences, but for me, I prepared exactly the same way for the Georgia game than I did for the game against Mercer. 
and the game against Mississippi State, the game against Florida State, and everything else in between. It is still the next game on the schedule, and it's still broadcast. You don't want to screw up on the air. And uh, really, the only difference is is that, you know, our great producer, Tom Stipe, uh, he and I work together painstakingly on building the tees for the broadcasts for the postseason, uh, as opposed to just kind of whipping something together for the regular season. And obviously, Tom and I, you know, put our heads together to try and come up with what might be good to say if the game ends in Alabama's favor. And then we tweak that, and then, you know, I work on that and so on. But, uh, yeah, Tom and I, and I'm, I'm very lucky to have, you know, arguably one of the best sports producers in the world, man. Tom's really good. And, uh, you know, it's uh, so you know what, it, what, what has to be done. You do know what's going to be called upon you, extra talk shows, extra radio time. Uh, you have to manage your time, but, uh, but that's, that's just fine with me. And you talked about getting your thoughts together if Alabama does win the championship. That's something you could have in your mind, but you can never predict what that final play is going to no. be like. Could you talk me through those two plays that Alabama had in overtime? Because they were both stunning in their own ways. Well, we're just sitting there, and you know, you're just doing the play-by-play, and of course, you have to pick yourself up after uh, Andy missed that last-second field goal in regulation that would have won it. So you're already, you know, having to pump yourself back up, and then you know they get the field goal, and they're up three nothing, and uh, and then you're encouraged because you say, well, we could score a touchdown here and win this thing. Uh, then the first play in the extra period for Alabama, and he loses all those yards all the way back to uh, back, you know, all the way back yonder, as they say. And we just kind of looked at each other in the booth. We're talking, of course, on the air, and we just looked, and uh, we weren't terribly encouraged. And then the next thing you know, bang, it's over. The game winner. The game winner right there. And, uh, you know, you just, uh, you just, you were, we were amazed, obviously. It was like, you know, man, what just happened here? <laughs> and uh, then you, you know, go into your into your wrap-up. But uh, yeah, it was like everybody. It was like you. It was like everybody in the world watching, regardless of what side you were on. You had the highest of highs and the lowest of lows within the span of about a minute or two on the, on the real clock on, of the day. You know, at 12.09, you thought you were going home without a title. And then at, you know, midnight and 10 or midnight and 11, you're going home with the title, so it was it was just a uh, it was just a, a a real mind-boggling emotional roller coaster. And you've talked before about you have to keep yourself calm in those moments, and it even goes back to an old Red Barber quote I heard talking about Stonewall Jackson. With all the chaos around you, you have to be the calmest one. Is that something you consciously think of in those moments? I do, I do. As a matter of fact, I, I was it was very nice. I got an email or a text. I've forgotten which. Doesn't matter. From uh, Eric Asseltine who was the uh, voice of the Memphis Grizzlies of the NBA. Uh, he's a friend of mine, but he, he texted me the next day, and he said, Th- that was a lesson, and I appreciated it. That was a lesson in how this kind of stuff should be handled. He said, I don't believe I could have kept my composure. That's him talking. He said, if the Grizz had won the NBA title, <laughs> he said, I would have been yelling and screaming and going out of my mind, and I would have sounded like a buffoon. He said, you ramped up the energy you ramped up the uh, voice inflection but you kept it calm 
nobody makes fun of you on the air because listen to the way he's yelling and screaming. He said, I don't know if I could have done that. So, yes, you always, I always remember that every play and every broadcast now is heard everywhere. ESPN, Radio, Fox, Sports, everybody. It's going to live on in the Bryant Museum well past the days when, when I'm dead and gone. So you're just trying to make sure you do a good job uh, for the university and, and not and, and I and just don't you can be excited, you can be enthusiastic, but I don't like to go nuts. You don't like to scream. No, yeah. no, <laughs> and I, no, not at all. <laughs> no doubt about it. And just going back throughout your career, now we've talked about the six national championships you've been able to call. That's more than 40, more than any other radio broadcaster in the history of the school. How much does that mean to you? Well, it, it's it's nice. Uh, I just happen to be here at the right time is what it is. I mean, John Forney was a magnificent voice of the Crimson Tide. You know, Mel Allen in years gone by before him and everybody else who's been here. Um, I just happen to be blessed and lucky enough to have been the custodian of this job uh, in what is arguably the greatest era of Crimson Tide sports. So uh, it's nice, but I, you know, and it's something to talk about. But I don't know if I necessarily uh, put it on the resume or anything. But it's it, it's been uh, it's been very very nice. It really has. Well, you mentioned Mel Allen. I caught it at the end of the call on Monday night. Catch How that? about that? Yeah. Yes, <laughs> that was something that just came out of my mouth. That was again not scripted. And then when I listened back, and I didn't even realize that I had said it. I didn't realize I had said it. I then listened back uh, on the post game. We played the call, and I said, "Well, that's nice—a little tribute to a former <laughs> voice of the Crimson Tide." Yeah, because for those who don't know, Mel Allen, of course, his signature saying was, "How about that? Another Valentine blast, <laughs> you know, for Mickey Mantle, his 60th, you know, whatever." And I, I didn't go with the Valentine blast part, but I. Uh, uh, Valentine being a beer up in the Northeast, if you're uh, not aware. But, uh, yeah, I, uh, I I didn't realize that I had said it. I had talked to Tom Stipe again, our, our producer, and he said, you know, a nice big wow might work. And I said, yeah, it might. Uh, it might be a good thing. And I didn't say wow. I said, how about that? And uh, <laughs> it was pretty cool. Well, that's cool how it all comes full circle. And for people that don't know your story, of course, you are not from the state of Alabama. You're from New York. Right. And Mel Allen on the radio and listening to the Yankees and all the other great teams in town. Sure. That was the spark of everything for you. It was. Uh, Mel Allen used to put me to sleep. And I don't mean that in a bad way. But uh, I loved uh, when I when I was growing up in New York City. Uh, that was that short period of time when New York was a one-franchise city. Uh, the Giants and Dodgers had left, and the Mets had not yet been born. So if you wanted to pull for your hometown team, it was the Yankees. And as it turned out, the two Yankee broadcasters were both Southern boys, Mel Allen from Bessemer, Alabama, and Red Barber originally from Columbus, Mississippi, living at that time eventually in uh, Tallahassee, Florida. But, yeah, they and, and, and Marv Albert doing the Rangers and the Knicks and Bob Wolf, who also did Rangers and Knicks television, uh, those are the guys who kind of kindled the, uh, the interest uh, for me in becoming a sports broadcaster. And my mom and dad would say, now, little Eli, I was never little, but, you know, <laughs> little Eli, go to sleep. Turn the, We used to have a transistor radio. And for those of you who don't know what it is, go to Google and look it up. It's a, it was a little radio with an earpiece, 
and they'd say, go to sleep, go to sleep, you've got school tomorrow. And then I'd, you know, make like I was going to sleep, and as soon as they left the room, I'd put the earplug back in my <laughs> ear and listen to the seventh and eighth innings of the Yankee game from Detroit or wherever. Uh, then, of course, fell asleep with the radio on and had to get new batteries the next day. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, th- those were the, you know, the voices of sports that I grew up with. And you had those voices, and then you eventually made yourself made your way to Madison Square Garden mm-hmm. at first as a peanut vendor. Is yes, that right? yes, I sold uh, peanuts at Madison Square Garden. I wanted to go. I wanted to be part of sports. Uh, I didn't. Uh, my dad had passed away by that time. He passed away when I was young, and uh, we didn't have extra money. Couldn't afford to go to the games. So I said, "What's the next best next best way to go?" Well, let's do something where they pay me to go to the games. And I was, uh, so I, I applied and I became a peanut vendor for the Harry M. Stevens Company. I could not, you know, the big money was in selling beer. But I wasn't of age to sell beer. I was still a kid. Uh, and then they said, well, do you want to you sell hot dogs? Well, the hot dogs, you know, you, you carried this giant metal <laughs> thing around with the hot dogs in the boiling hot water, and you had to take the bun and the mustard and the sauerkraut and the whole... And I said to myself, that's, that's, more, that's too much like work. I said, I'll take the peanuts. Now, peanuts, they sold them for a buck. You carried them around in a laundry basket, seriously, a laundry basket, You'd go, hey, get your peanuts here. And, you know, the guy would say, I'll take one. And you'd throw him the bag of peanuts or pass it down the row, and they'd give you a dollar. It was no problem making change. And even though you didn't make much money, I was in the building. And I did not work in the good seats. I went up to the upper deck near the press box, and I hung out and talked to all the broadcasters as they came through. I would pester them, just asking a quick question as they ran to the men's room or something. I just wanted to be near these men, all the visiting broadcasters. I studied who they were, uh, and and I just watched them. And then before the game and between periods, you know, I would sell peanuts because you had to sell. You were there. You know, they were expecting you to to sell your product. But uh, I would stand during the play of the game while the puck was in act was was live. And I'd just watch the radio guys. You know, I couldn't hear them. They were up in the press box a little bit, but I couldn't hear them, but I just wanted to see them. I watched how they worked. I watched people handing them cards, things to read, and so on. And, uh, I mean, I was just eating up with it, and that's, uh, and that's what got me started. Who were some of those veteran announcers that were nice to you, took some time to talk to a young Oh, God. They were, well, Bob Wolf was the best. Uh, he was, you may not know the name, but Bob Wolf did – Don Larson's perfect mm-hmm. game on television. He was the voice of the Knicks and the Rangers at that time, previously the voice of the Washington Senators. Uh, he was he was great. Marv Albert was outstanding. Um, there were so many from out of town who didn't know me from Adam's house cat. But, you know, I would just ask him a question. Danny Gallivan from the Montreal Canadiens was a, a gem of a man, and he didn't know me from anybody. But he would always answer my question, and I'd walk him to the men's room, and when he came out of the bathroom, I walked him back to the press box. But he was always answering my questions. Uh, there were guys who you might not know. Chip Sapola, who was the voice of the New York football giants at that point on WNEW Radio in New York. He was, he was wonderful. Uh, so there were many. Uh, there were many folks who just, you know, poo-pooed me and forgot about it. But, uh, you know, there were some great guys then and still now to this day. I, I heard yesterday or Monday uh, from, you know, 
a number of broadcasters uh, out there who are, you know, Kevin Harlan, who is one of my closest friends, works for CBS and TNT, TBS. Uh, he texted me promptly after the game and was listening during the game because I got a few thoughts. And I've stolen stuff from him. I mean, stylistically, uh, his style is totally different. But the degree of detail that he does on a broadcast. So there, I was, I've always learned from other guys and, and still do. What were some of the best sporting events you got to see in those days in Madison Square Garden? Well, the best one, and this I did not work. This was at, after I was a peanut guy. Now, let's go back. When I was a peanut guy, I saw game sevens of, you know, the NBA finals. And uh, I saw all the top hockey games. And, you know, in those days, the NIT tournament, basketball tournament, was the right. tournament. It was the one. You didn't want to be in the NCAA tournament. You wanted to be in the NIT and play at the Garden. Now, of course, things have turned around, and the NIT is the secondary tournament. But in those days, it was the other way around. So I went to every NIT game. It was wonderful. Uh, but the uh, but the thing that uh, you know really did it for me was I eventually left the peanut selling business and was able, through contacts that I made through Bob Wolf, the broadcaster who maintained an office at Madison Square Garden, uh, I got a, uh, a job as an office boy for the Madison Square Garden Corporation. I'd run Xerox machines for them. I'd hand carry envelopes from the office to a law firm. Uh, they, you know, all sorts of just menial stuff like that, make coffee for people, what have you. Uh, but that got me in to the corporation, Madison Square Garden Corporation. And the one of the most huge events in the world was coming to the Garden. It was the first Ali Frazier fight. And I couldn't afford the ticket. They made tickets available to us. I could buy two tickets, upper deck, but I had two tickets made available to me as an employee if I wanted to buy them. Well, you can imagine Ali Frazier, you know, how sure. huge that ticket price was. <laughs> it was $20 a ticket, $20 in those days. But $20 in those days, you know, is like, you know, 675 <laughs> bucks today. And I couldn't afford $20 a ticket. Uh, but my cousin, who was a successful lawyer, uh, he bought the tickets for himself and for me. And uh, we went to the first Ali Frazier fight. I still have the program at the house. I have the ticket stub stapled to the front page of the program. So, uh, you know, that was one of the absolute biggest. Uh, I was at a number of the, the Milrose games, the track and field uh, event where records would always fall for indoor track and field. So, you know, I, I, I saw a lot. Uh, I was very, very lucky. So you definitely had the interest, and you talked about working for the Madison Square Garden Corporation. Right. For you, knowing that you had the interest in broadcasting, were you dead set on being a play-by-play -play announcer at that time or just working somehow in sports? I wanted to be a play-by-play -play guy. Uh, I just, when we, when I graduated from elementary school, from eighth grade, we put out a little uh, yearbook of, uh, of some sort, and one of the pages in the back had, you know, write down your name, your pets, your pet's name, all that kind of stuff. <laughs> and it said, one line said, future occupation. And I was coming out of eighth grade, and I wrote down sports broadcaster. And uh, that's what I always wanted to do. Uh, I just love sports. 
I was eaten up with it. And, of course, in those days, we still had black and white television. There was no cable. So you were limited to local sports, sporting events on the tube. And, again, you weren't captivated by the, the flashes of color. It was all black and white. Uh, but there was something about it that I wanted to be part of. And I loved the idea of traveling and seeing the world uh, and on somebody else's ticket, I might add. <laughs> and uh, so I just set my sights to it. Uh, I was a terrible student. I went to work instead of going to school. Uh, worked, however, at some of the best radio stations in the world. Not on the air. I was a, a, I'd rewrite wire copy. I'd edit audio tape. I'd run the board. Uh, I, I would do all sorts of stuff just to be around it and learn the business. WOR Radio in New York. WNEW uh, in New York. Some of the great stations... And I was just eaten up with learning the business and then eventually uh, got a break to uh, go to work doing minor league hockey. And uh, that started things and on a on a pay-for-work basis. <laughs> so minor league hockey was your first play-by-play? -play? Yes, minor league hockey in the old Eastern Hockey League, which is the league about which the movie Slapshot was made. If you ever saw that mm -hmm. movie, uh, that was the league I was in. I was with the Long Island Ducks. Uh, and it was a bus league, and it was you you lived on the bus, man. <laughs> they had teams in Maine, they had teams in St. Petersburg, Florida, and everywhere in between. And you would take these ungodly bus trips. But and it pay and the guy, the owner, he said to me when I was first hired, he said, "We'll take care of your expenses. You know, put you up in the hotel. You know, the whole bit." And I'll take care of you at the end of the season. So I had no salary. But I was living at home. I had no I wasn't paying rent. I was chasing my dream. My mom didn't ask me to pay rent. And he'll take care of me at the end of the season. Season's over. He hands me an envelope. And of course you don't want to open it right there sure. and look real <laughs> tacky. So I I put it in my bag. And I uh, opened it later, and it was a $50 gift certificate to Sears. Goodness. That was my pay for that first season of hockey. But in reality, my pay was 72 games on the air, doing the play-by-play -play on a terribly small station on the far eastern end of Long Island. It was a low, as low an impact broadcast as you could find, but it was good because I was terrible. I was abysmal. And... When I stunk, which was more often than not, the owner didn't care. He was just happy to hear some semblance of a hockey game from his team when they were on the road and at home. Uh, so he was happy, and uh, and I got better as the season progressed. But uh, I did many, many years of minor league hockey to start uh, things off. And that's what brought you to Birmingham. It was the Birmingham Bulls of the World Hockey Association. I was working in the American Hockey League at the time. I had gone from the Eastern League with the Ducks to the North American Hockey League to the Southern Hockey League. Then the next step was the American Hockey League, which was AAA. That was AAA in hockey, still is to this day. And uh, I uh, was working in Hampton, Virginia, when the... Toronto Toros of the World Hockey Association, which was the rival major league to the NHL at the time. There were two major leagues. The Toronto Toros realized that they could not succeed against the Toronto Maple Leafs. So the owner, John Bassett, 
moved the team from Toronto to Birmingham. Kept the same logo. That's why the Toros became the Bulls. Okay. Didn't have to get new anything. Right. Everything was the same. When they got to Birmingham, though, they realized they had nobody who could do hockey. Uh, Gary Sanders, who was on Channel 13 at the time, and former voice of the Auburn Tigers, uh, he had done a few games for somebody in Knoxville way back when, so he started doing some of the games, but uh, he couldn't continue. He had a regular nightly TV gig. So I was in, in Hampton, which was the farm team for that organization. They were the AAA team for the Toronto Toros, became the Birmingham Bulls, and as soon as the team moved to uh, Birmingham, uh, John Bassett had me come down. So I go from riding the buses for an interminable number of days and hours, <laughs> uh, and then literally like three days later, I'm on an airplane flying to Edmonton for a start of a West Coast road trip. So uh, that is what got me to Birmingham. Basically sight unseen. You'd never been to Birmingham before? Never had been. Uh, knew nothing about it. Other, I mean, I had talked to people, again, because there was that major league AAA relationship. So I I'd talked on the telephone to uh, PR people and what have you. But, no, I'd never been to Birmingham, knew nothing about it. But I said, hey, this is what I want. I want the big leagues. And in those days, the WHA was the rival to the NHL. I said, I'm going. And off I went. And Claudette, and my wife, stayed in Virginia for a short while, uh, wrapped things up there. And then uh, she uh, followed me down. And we've been here, whatever it is now, 40 <laughs> years right. or whatever. Yeah. Really made it your home. And uh, was it a hard sell to Birmingham fans about hockey and kind of educating them about the game? Because that's a large part of your role, I guess, as yeah. a broadcaster. I don't know. I, I just I don't know if it was a hard sell or not. I just did it, you know, and I didn't I didn't overdo it. I didn't want to talk down to the listener. Uh, but, you know, there's here's an icing call to explain what icing sure. is or play is offside. And not every time, you know, you'll have you know, you'll have eight, ten offside calls in the course of a hockey game. Uh, I wouldn't explain what offside was every single time. But, you know, you do it three or four times in the course of the evening, uh, you know, had to educate people that there were two half times, if you will, right, you yeah. know, two intermissions, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, and that was, but you know, a lot of that stuff had been done in the first few games of the season when Gary was still doing the broadcasts and all. So uh, I didn't overdo it, but you know, I did do a lot of biographical information, stuff like that, to to help build the, you know, when when a guy like Frank Mahovlich skated onto the ice, well, all of us who follow the NHL knew he was a Hall of Famer and a great player. But, you know, Frank Mahovlich down here could have been, you know, Fred Kadiddlehopper. Folks <laughs> didn't know. Yeah. So you educate them in that regard, who these men are and how good they really are. So you had a good run with the Bulls. And then when did the St. Louis Blues opportunity happen? Well, when the Bulls, when the NHL decided to expand, which would be in 19, the announcement was made in uh, – 1978 that they were going to be expanding and taking in the WHA teams uh, John Bassett made probably a wise business decision I, I hated it but it was a good business Birmingham was a day of the week crowd which meant the fans would show up to the hockey games on Friday nights on Saturday nights didn't matter who you were playing you could play the best team in the league or the worst team in the league. It didn't matter. It was a social thing to do. F families, friends, buddies got together. They went to the hockey game. And 
John Bassett realized that, you know, on the Tuesdays or the Wednesdays when the best team in the league might be in town, the crowds were poor because people had church, they had whatever it was. So he made the decision not to go into the National Hockey League, one of the few teams from the WHA that did not. Well, Birmingham's World Hockey Association team was spectacular. John Bassett had opened up his checkbook and bought and traded for and got some of the absolute best players in the history of hockey. Had that team stayed together and gone to the NHL, they would have won the Stanley Cup. I have no doubt whatsoever. But on Tuesday nights against Montreal, you'd draw 12 people. And, you know, on Saturday night against the worst team in the league, you'd draw (laughs) 16,000. He said the business model is just not there for Birmingham. So when it was announced that Birmingham was not going to go into the uh, in, in expansion, uh, every NHL general manager started following the Bulls for like two or three weeks. I mean, the, this team was that good. I mean, I'm serious, that good. You had every NHL general manager, director of scouting, team presidents. You'd have teams with off days and the head coaches would be there. Everywhere the Bulls played domestically or in Canada, all these NHL guys were there. Well, just by total absolute coincidence, uh, there were a few games in a row where Emil Francis, Emil Francis was the coach and general manager and president of the St. Louis Blues. There were a few games in a row where he came to the games along with his director of scouting, Dennis Ball, and they sat right near me in the press box, along with everybody else. But they were really they were within earshot for a number of games in succession. And I guess they liked what they heard, but nobody said anything about anything. Well, then after that season was over, in St. Louis, KMOX Radio, the powerhouse radio station in St. Louis, uh, decided. Uh, well, they were getting some heat from the TV station. They did simulcasts. The same audio was heard on both radio and TV. The TV station, KDNL, wanted the announcers to, you know, recognize the fact that they were also on television. They wanted them to be able to say, and for those of you watching on Channel 30, don't forget, tonight Hogan's Heroes follows the hockey game. Or if there was a replay on the screen, they wanted to be able to say, now look, right there, you know, see that guy? He should have done this. Well, Mr. Highland, Bob Highland, who is the head of KMOX, said, no, 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 this is a radio broadcast. This is KMOX's show. You're just taking our sound. You can do that. God bless you. But we're not letting our, you know, Dan Kelly was not going to start promoting Hogan's Heroes or the the 11 o'clock news. So the decision was made to split the broadcasts. And Dan Kelly and Gus Kyle stayed on KMOX, and they needed a TV guy uh, to do the games on, on KDNL. And Emil Francis and Dennis Ball said, you know, there's this kid down in Birmingham, Alabama, who we've heard, and he's really good. And they said, Birmingham, Alabama? He said, yeah, but, you know, listen to the guy. So they flew me to uh, St. Louis and the general manager of the station, Jack Petrick, who went on to be the head of Turner Sports uh, for a number of years, uh, they brought me in, stood me up in a studio 
literally, the studio was dark, <laughs> turned the lights on, and I was there standing by myself. Tell us your philosophy of broadcasting a hockey game. Tell us this. Tell us that. Do this. Tell me about this. Then they popped on a, a, a tape of a Blues game. I said, I know you don't know who's who. That doesn't matter. Just make names up as you give us a little of your play-by-play. And that was it. And they said, well, we'll get back to you. And they sent me back home to Birmingham. And I waited and I waited. It was like a week, week and a half. I finally called back to Mr. Petrick. This is before email and all this. And I said, I'm not uh, trying to push you, but I'm curious, you know, how things go. He goes, hasn't anybody called you? I said, what? He goes, you got the job. I said, get out of here. He said, yeah, didn't they tell you? I said, no. He said, all right, we'll talk to you soon. He was <laughs> going off to lunch or something. So uh, that's how that came about. And uh, next thing you know, I'm I'm doing uh, the National Hockey League. And that was one of your dreams, to get to, it the was. Major league, get to the NHL specifically. It was to get to the NHL. I wanted to do all sorts of sports, but uh, getting to the NHL and then doing broadcasts from the Montreal Forum and Maple Leaf Gardens and then coming back to Madison Square Garden. Uh, and I saw all my friends. I mean, the place where I – and that's where the name of my book, From Peanuts right. to the Press Box, uh, going back and doing that first telecast, which actually, interestingly, the Bulls uh, – the Blues, rather, were in town to play the Rangers. I don't know if it was on a Saturday or whatever. Well, Friday, the Atlanta Flames were in to play the Rangers. The Rangers had home games back-to-back nights. And the – the Flames color man, Bernie Jeffreyon, got ill. And I was, because of our geographic proximity down here to Atlanta, I knew the, the people with the Flames organization very well. Uh, and David Poyle, who is now the GM in Nashville, and uh, he and, and other guys, Cliff Fletcher, who was the general manager. And the play-by-play guy, Jiggs McDonald, says, hey, Boomer's sick. Boomer Jeffrey on. He said, he's not going to be able to work. Who can I find? And they didn't have any extra players who aren't playing that night. Everybody was healthy. And they said, hey, you know, the Blues are in town tomorrow. I bet you Eli's here somewhere. Well, this is before cell phones. So they called and, and, and found somebody who knew where I was. My wife was with me, so it wasn't her. But they found somebody who knew where I was and where the Blues were staying. They called the hotel said, hey, what are you doing? I said, not much. He goes, you want to do, be on the, the, the Flames telecast tonight? I said, sure, what happened? And they told me the details, and I showed up at the garden. So I actually, my first broadcast from Madison Square Garden was doing color <laughs> for the Flames and the Rangers on, on what was then Channel 17 in Atlanta. Uh, and then I did uh, the regular uh, Blues telecast the next night. That's pretty good. Kind of weird, yeah. How'd your NASCAR career begin? That was when I was doing minor league hockey, riding the buses, as I said, from Maine to St. Petersburg and everywhere in between. And we used to have those little transistor radios, and I'm we're bouncing down the highway somewhere, and it's a Sunday, and I don't know where the heck we were going, but we were in the south. We were in the deep south making a road trip, uh, and I went through the dial, and I heard NASCAR on radio. And I, I didn't see much NASCAR in those days. Of course, it wasn't on like it is today. There was no cable. Uh, it was, you know, 15 minutes from Daytona on Wide World of Sports, you know, sandwiched in between the, the wrist wrestling from Petaluma, California, you know, and the, the Duke Kahanamoku Surfing <laughs> Classic from Honolulu. 
But what, I, what those 15 minutes that I saw, I enjoyed. And then I heard NASCAR on the radio. And I said, geez, I didn't know they had that. And I uh, made notes while I'm going down the highway of who I was hearing. I didn't even know. And then they identified the name of the network. And then I just began calling around to see what it was, who it was. And uh, I found Motor Racing Network in Daytona Beach. And I said, I'd like to work for you. And they said, uh, okay, well, you know, we'll get back to you in a little bit. In those days, though, you know, nobody was clamoring to do NASCAR. It's not like it was in, in recent years. And then they had an ownership or a management change. And the new general manager was Jack Aroot, who used to work the sidelines for ABC football, has done so much work. Anyway, I called back and talked to Jackie, and he said, all right, yeah, I said, we could use somebody. He said, uh, have you ever done racing before? And, of course, like an aspiring broadcaster, <laughs> I lied through my teeth sure. and said, sure, I have. He said, where have you worked? I said, well, I named a few obscure tracks on the eastern end of Long Island. And he said, well, send me one of your tapes, which, of course, in our business is the norm. They don't care if you have a diploma. They want to hear what you sound like. He says, send me one of your tapes. <laughs> and I said to myself, well, now I'm up the creek without a paddle. <laughs> Uh, because the tapes didn't exist. So I waited a couple of three days, and I called back to Jackie, and I said, look, I can't put my hands on any of my hockey tapes, but how, or any of my racing tapes, and how about if I send you a hockey tape? And at that point, that was 1977, and I was, actually 75, and I was a couple of years away from making it to the uh, National Hockey League at that point. So I was doing a pretty good hockey game and uh, bottom line was he got the tape and he said you know that's not bad so what do we what do we say we bring you to the Charlotte race in 1976 that's the next year if you do well we'll keep you if you stink we'll send you home so it was an on-air audition that was my first race in May of 76 on the basis of a hockey tape and uh, the next thing you know, uh, I was with them for 41 years before I stepped aside. And you got to be really proud that your NASCAR career, you're able to see the sport go through so many changes. Like you mentioned, you know, full races were not even on television. To sure. Now. We have entire networks dedicated to them. You've done NASCAR on television. Just you got to be really proud to see the sport change from kind of the good old boy setup that mm -hmm. used to be there in the 70s to where we are now where it is a science and you're getting the very best. It, it certainly was a huge change over the years. Sometimes it was like pulling teeth and uh, sometimes not. The good thing is I was not the visionary, but indeed Bill France Sr. and Bill France Jr. were. Uh, I did not see NASCAR becoming what it has become. Uh, they did. But, yeah, it was quite interesting. You know, there were so many changes, not only the, the venues and the, the, the thousands of fans, but even the technology, you know, going from, from uh, bias ply tires to steel belted radials and all that that meant to the preparation of a race car and so on. So it was quite, uh, it was an exciting time to be part of that sport, no doubt. And it's exhilarating to listen to NASCAR on the radio like you had for all those years in MRN. What's it like when you are announcing it? Is there any way to communicate back and forth, or is pretty much everything we hear live when we are switching to everything different towers? Everything is live. Okay. Yeah, everything is live. Uh, we have uh, what we would have a production meeting before the race, and we had guys, for instance, at Talladega. You'd have two guys in the anchor booth. One guy at the exit of turn two, one guy down the end of the backstretch, one guy near the exit of turn four. 
not to mention the uh, guys on pit road. And uh, you would, uh, we would have a production meeting, and we'd, we, would assi- well, we would set up what we called our drop points, where the guy who's talking in front of you will drop it to you. And it was physically, a, you know, I'd say, all right, guys, look, uh, going into turn number one, you see that powder blue motor home there with the, uh, you know, the, the flag on the top of it? That's going to be the drop point. Then the guys from tur- in turn two would talk to the guy at the end of the back stretch. All right, you see, you know, that, that uh, Caterpillar trailer or whatever the heck it was. That's the, you know, and we'd physically set up. So what the guys would know is that when, when the cars or whatever we were talking about got to that drop point, they were comfortable in knowing that we were not going, uh, uh, they were not going to uh, start another sentence and that they could comfortably uh, just, uh, you know, pick up and, and get with the program. So that's why it sounds so seamless. Uh, you know, it was, uh, it was just a, a, basic, uh, a basic handoff, one guy to the next, based on that location, that, uh, that thing that we see right there, that, that, that drop point. That's excellent. Yeah. And it is exciting to talk about different aspects of your career from the hockey to the racing. Uh, before we dive into too much Alabama stuff, though, did want to get just a couple of quick thoughts about uh, your experience with the Birmingham Barons. Obviously, I'm in the same league uh, with sure. Jacksonville, but you must have really enjoyed uh, getting to call baseball each and every day. And yes, the travel, I'm sure, took you right back to your minor league hockey days. It but did. Uh, what was the experience like for you getting to call those games? I loved it. Uh, I still love baseball. Even the games I do now for the University of Alabama. On the SEC network, it is so much fun. What makes baseball great is that it allows your personality to come out. It allows you to tell stories. Uh, you know, they did they did a study many many years ago now, but not that far back. In an average, if there is such a thing, in an average nine inning ball game, the baseball is actually live for about seven and a half minutes. That counts the split second when the pitcher throws to the plate. Uh, the split second when the ball is thrown back to the pitcher. The ball is actually live and in play and in motion for like seven minutes. So if you're on the air for three hours, you've got to, excluding commercials, you've got to fill for two hours and 57, 53 minutes. So it was always fun. Now, the, the Southern League of Baseball is, is very difficult because you have so few off days. Mm-hmm. I don't have to tell you. <laughs> and I'd walk up to the press box some days and just looking on the horizon, praying for a rain cloud. And there were none. So it was very, very tough. But uh, And, of course, we didn't have the fancy ballpark. I worked at Rickwood Field. You had no air conditioning. It was room temperature. Whatever the heck the room was, that's what you were. And it was 90-something degrees most nights and most days. But I just love baseball. I love the strategy. Uh, and, again, the pace is such that you can tell stories. You, it makes you a better broadcaster. It, it teaches you how to take a story that if you're just sitting around talking to a buddy, you might be able to tell him in a minute and make it last three outs. You know, you had to really hone your delivery. Uh, I didn't have a color man, as most guys don't in the minor leagues of baseball. Uh, so it was really, um, it helped me become a better broadcaster because you had to just do all that fill. But I loved it. Then, of course, in typical Eli fashion, you know, everywhere I've been, the teams win championships. It's just a weird thing. So the Barons were very, very good. Uh, the years they didn't win the title, it, was, it went down to the wire. The year they won the championship, it was wire to wire. You know, they were in first place on opening day and, and stayed there which makes it a whole lot easier than, you know, doing 
a few years ago doing the Cubbies when, you know, it's, <laughs> it's May 12th and you're playing out the string. Sure. That could be tough. So I was lucky in the baseball days that uh, I was with a competitive franchise. Competitive franchise. Tigers organization at the yes, time? Yes, at the time, the Detroit Tigers and uh, some very, very good players. And, of course, they played at that time. You know, Jacksonville uh, had Brett Saberhagen and Mark Gubizaw some great pitchers in the Kansas City organization and so on. It was There was some significant, really good, some really good players in that league. Uh, so it was a lot of fun. I loved it. I really did. And your association did take you to Detroit eventually with them, right? For a, just a cup of coffee. Just a cup of coffee. Yes, okay. Just a few days. Somebody got sick and I was uh, there. But, yeah, I – I was there, but uh, I don't. I don't count that. It I was just a, an injury fill-in kind of deal. <laughs> but at Tiger Stadium, yes, very yes, cool. it was cool. That it is very cool. good. And uh, I've heard you talk before about you were on the road with the Barons when the chatter about you working for the Crimson Tide Sports Network and for Alabama started. Yeah, uh, the, the predecessor, Paul Kennedy. Uh, it was announced that he was not going to be rehired when his contract expired, and I did not uh, have any. Uh, any nothing. I mean, I didn't talk to anybody. Uh, I did not. Uh, I did not uh, have an agent talking to anybody on my behalf. It was. I just didn't touch it. I was a pro sports guy from New York with literally no connections to the university. And then, uh, you know, next thing it said in the newspapers, it said, you know, those on the uh, list to be considered are. Yada, 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 and Eli Gold. They were like, you know, they must have had 15 or 20 names. And then bit by bit, that list got whittled down. And I had never talked to anybody. And again, I had no agent. There were no back-channel discussions, nothing. And then again, it was those on the short list include yada, 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 and Eli Gold. And then a short time further, and again, I'm off doing baseball. And it, then, then the next article comes out, and it says, those coming in for an interview are yada, 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 and Eli Gold. Well, I knew nothing about it, man. I knew nothing about it. <laughs> so I finally found out who was quoted in the articles. It was a gentleman by the name of Tommy Limbaugh, who was empowered by then-athletic director Steve Sloan to hire the new voice of the Tide. And I, you know, I'm, what's the old saying? I might be ugly. I'm not stupid. I picked up the <laughs> phone. I picked up the phone and I called Tommy Limbaugh and I said, Mr. Limbaugh, I said, uh, you don't know me, but I understand I'm coming in for an interview. My name is Eli Gold. And that was a nice uh, icebreaker right there. We both chuckled. And he said, would you like to come in? And I said, certainly. Who wouldn't? He said, when are you getting back to town? I said, I'll be there Monday. He said, be at my office uh, Monday at 2. And I went down and I met him. Met Bill Curry, who was the football coach at the time. Met Wimp Sanderson, who was the basketball coach at the time. And I left there with the basketball job. Uh, What they decided to do was bring John Forney back to do his 30th year of football. John had done 29 years, then was let go when Ray Perkins took over. Uh, They decided to bring John back to do his 30th year, and they handed me the basketball job. Now we fast forward to February of... 89. I'm doing that. I'm in the middle of that first basketball season. And I'm in Richmond, Virginia for the February NASCAR race. And I'm at the hotel, the Sheraton near the airport. And again, before cell phones. Sure. <laughs> My phone rings and it's Tommy Limbaugh. And he said, Hey, Ayla, how you doing? I said, I'm fine. Tell me what's up. He goes, 
you're going to be in Knoxville tomorrow, aren't you? I said, yeah, the Bama was playing there on Saturday. I would always go in on Friday for the shoot-around and so on. Uh, and, but I was in Thursday, I was in Richmond. He said, I need to see you. I said, okay. He said, I'll meet you at, the, at Thompson Bowling Arena. So then you're saying now, so now you're saying to yourself, well, it's either something really good or really bad. You either screwed up and the man's <laughs> going to fire your first year, too. Yeah, yeah. The man's going to fire you in person. <laughs> or so I get up first thing Friday morning to catch my flight. Well, overnight, there must have been, must have been 18 inches of snow. I mean, it was unbelievable. Unbelievable. And they, uh, the airport was closed. Nothing was going anywhere. I got to meet Tommy at the, uh, you know, at the uh, shoot around that day. And uh, the next thing I'm saying to myself, how am I going to get to Knoxville? Well, I went across. I got out of the hotel, went across. We were staying at the airport. I went to the private terminal, talked to some folks. I said, does anybody know anybody here who owns a private plane? Now, I didn't have the money. But I said, this could be big. I'm not going to blow this. And I took out my credit card, and I said, look, I need to get to Knoxville, Tennessee promptly. As soon as this airport opens, or I don't care if we take off out of the taxiway, I said, i got to get to Knoxville, Tennessee. The guy said, okay, you just sit here. Well, the second the airport opened, which was like 11 or noon, uh, we took off in a little... It was like 5 o'clock Charlie on the mashup. <laughs> One of those things. And I get to uh, Knoxville, go right to Thompson Bowling Arena, sitting center court, 16 rows up with Tommy Limbaugh, and that's where he offered me the football job. Surrounded by all those orange seats. Right in the middle of all those <laughs> orange seats, I was offered the Alabama football job, and uh, that was uh, to February of 89. And I started with the foot, first football game in September of 89. That's incredible. It really is. Had you been back when you were living in Birmingham in the 70s and 80s, did you come to Tuscaloosa very much, or were you around the program? Very rarely. Very rarely. Uh, one of the things that did help me, though, is I ran into Wimp Sanderson. He and I got to know each other you know, pretty decently. Uh, I wasn't working with him or anything, but we became decent friends. I know that he went to bat for me, nice. uh, which was very, very nice. And, uh, you know, I... I, I Thank him every time I see him and Tommy Limbaugh. I thank them both. But, uh, but no, I was not really, uh, you know, I was a, a New York guy, a pro sports guy. I had no allegiance to either university. It was just a very, it was new, a very unusual situation. But uh, thank God it's worked out. Here we are 30 years later. And six championships later. Yeah, yeah. And it's unbelievable. It really has been an incredible run. And as we start to wrap things up, uh, just looking back at the different uh, eras of Alabama football, you've been able to be a part of, uh, first of all, the Stallings era. What did that championship in 92 mean? Well, it was. It, it had you know, showed there was a continuation from the Bear Bryant days. Even though there was a break in there with the Ray Perkins stuff, it just showed that another one of Bear Bryant's disciples could lead Alabama to a national championship. So it was it was big. It was very nice. And, of course, the Tide was given no chance to beat Miami, and they went out and spanked Gino Toretta and the Hurricanes. So that was a, a big game. But you know, then who knew it'd be 17 years sure. till you win another one. 
And uh, Coach DeBose was able to win an SEC championship. Even Franchoni in his brief time was able to have some good mm-hmm. teams. Yep. Um, then you get in the Shula years to the Saban years. Uh, how did you see everything kind of change? In, in one way, I want to ask how it changed just on the broadcast side of things because the network continued to grow. And I, I know you really enjoyed your partnership with Kenny Stabler. Oh, I, it was great working with Snake, uh, you know, and he, he was a wonderful guy. And, of course, like Phil, he's one of those guys who – who has forgotten more about football than I'll ever know. So, you know, you just if you have a question, you just lean on those guys because they know the answers. Um, you know, the Nick Saban era, though, had brought about some changes. You know, little stuff that doesn't affect the listener but makes a major effect on us. Uh, we have a three-hour pregame show. I used to be anchoring that pregame show because I would tape the pregame with the coach on Friday, that interview that we would play. Nick Saban now, two hours before kickoff. To the minute. To the minute. To the minute, man. We play at 2.37 on CBS. He and I sit down at 12.37, not at 12.30. But that meant, do I leave in the middle of the our, our pregame show? What? Do, how do we handle that? At LSU, when Nick Saban was there, their boss said that they needed Jim Hawthorne, their play-by-play guy, to anchor their pregame show. Uh, and that somebody else, they used Jordy Holtberg, their sideline guy, to interview Coach Saban. Jim Carabin uh, said, wait a second now, this is the final most important interview of the week, one-on-one, two hours before kickoff. you got to do that one. So we reformatted the pregame show to get me free after the first 35 minutes or so to head down to the locker room to interview the coach. So we, so there were things behind the scenes that had to be done. But, uh, but he, he's been great to work with. I mean, he's, uh, you know, he's a, an interesting man, to say the least, and the most focused human being I've ever worked with. But um, it's, it's been wonderful, man. And yeah, he can do whatever he wants as long as he keeps bringing in these titles. <laughs> it's, it's, un, it's been unbelievable. Yeah, now uh, five in his time at Alabama, and, of course, you mentioned a six for you as well. One other thing I wanted to touch on, when you got the Alabama job uh, for football specifically in 1989, there were still a lot of the guys that had been around their different schools in the SEC for a very long period of time, really known as the voice of sure. the program. Kaywood Ledford, Kentucky, John Ward, Tennessee. Stan Torgerson at Ole Miss. Yeah, Jim Five, Larry yeah. Munson. We can go on and on and on now you are really the dean of sec football announcers Dave now south after, is retiring. after south and after mm. jim hawthorne retired i am now the senior guy in the league how have you seen have first of all how have you seen that role change from when you started in the late 80s to where a handful of games are on television not everyone certainly but now every game's on television every game's on the cell phone essentially now how does the radio for the school how does it continue to have success because radio is still a medium that will live on forever not only is it a romantic medium and i use that word under advisement because it there is a romance to it as you describe everything but there is something about that home team broadcast regardless of the sport we're like that old comfortable pair of shoes we're there every game and we're there every day you know what you're going to get um there is that romance between the listener and the play-by-play guy that will go on forever. And then, on top of all of that, I respect and I love the folks who are at the game watching, who are watching on the TV or on the phones or whatever, but I'm not concerned about them. I appreciate them and I love them to death, but I'm broadcasting for the people who can't see the game. That's what radio is. 
whether a person is visually impaired, whether it's, as we get emails all the time, military folks at, you know, Bagram Air Force Base and, 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 you know, in Afghanistan or whatever, who are watching or who are staring at a computer speaker at 6 in the morning listening to that Alabama Ole Miss broadcast, uh, whether it's folks who are driving down the highway, whether it's the guy in the hospital, whatever it is, I am responsible for talking to the people who can't see the pictures. It's great having the other folks on with us and syncing up the pic. I love that. It's great. But uh, I don't do anything on the air to take away from our primary audience, and that's the listener who is not watching. That's why I will tell you when the lights come on. That's why I describe in detail the color and the style of the uniforms. That's why it's not enough to say it's a gray sky. It's a pewter gray sky. The shotgun snap isn't just a shotgun snap. It's a snap shoulder high, belt high, a low snap, a snap to his right. Uh, I do everything specifically for the listener. And do you think it's going to be able to continue that hometown, that radio feel, even into the next 30 years? I don't see why not. Yeah. You know, I don't see why not. Who knows what TVs will be like if they will even exist. But there is still going to be, there are still millions of people who cannot at any given moment watch an event for whatever reason. Whatever reason, you know. And if nothing else, those who are visually impaired or who are, you know, whatever it is. So, no, radio will always exist. Uh, it's, I mean, it's healthier than ever in the sports world. I don't know all about music radio, but for sports, the rights fees are gone through the roof. The networks are huge everywhere. Uh, so I would, uh, you know, I'd be shocked if radio doesn't continue to flourish for many, many seasons. And you got to be proud, too, with all the different ways people can keep up with the game on Monday night. I saw it firsthand on Twitter when I was going through during the game. Everybody, Alabama fans, wanted to hear your call immediately. Well, That's got to feel very that. good. It does. But I also realize it's not about me. Right. But just the Alabama call. Oh, the, yeah, it's, what the Crimson I'm Tides glad. I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled, no doubt about that. But, you know, we are the conduit between that set of ears and their favorite team. And I always remember that. I mean, it, this ain't about Eli. It's not about Phil. It's not about Chris Stewart, our sideline guy. We're the conduits bringing their favorite team and their favorite sport to them. But we never take for granted. Those are the people we work for. I tell folks that all the time. That guy over there, wherever he is or she might be, they may not sign our paychecks. But those are the people we work for, and I never forget that. Never forget that. Well, you do an extremely good job, and, of course, uh, you're doing the women's basketball game tonight against LSU, and you've got some busy months even coming up ahead, even when it's not football. Yeah, got hockey coming up. I'm a freelance guy. Mm -hmm. I don't get paid every two weeks. I work by the event. So, you know, and remarkably, the bills keep coming in whether I'm working (laughs) or not. So uh, I I like to keep it going, and that's what I do. That's all I know how to do. I I thrive at going to the events and – the Lord willing and the creek don't rise and my health stays with me, we'll, somebody will have me for many, many years to come yet. We look forward to it. Thank you for joining Thank me. Thank you, Roger. My pleasure. All right, a great conversation with Eli. I'm very appreciative of him spending so much time with me yesterday before the Alabama LSU women's basketball game. And uh, just a tremendous person and somebody I'm very glad to not only call a colleague on the Crimson Tide Sports Network, but a friend as well. 
That's going to wrap up this edition of the podcast, but next time we will have another quick episode for you on Monday. We will have a quick conversation with probably the most celebrity couple that Alabama sports has had over the last few years, Bradley Bozeman and Nikki Hegstetter. You probably saw Bradley's proposal after the national championship game on Monday. Well, you'll get to hear the story behind that proposal and what will be a quick conversation with Bradley and Nikki coming up on Monday and some other cool things are in store as well. So again, I thank all of you for listening to the podcast. Please subscribe on iTunes, rate and review as always. And until next time, play the waltz, Roy. I remember the night and the Tennessee waltz. Only you know how much I have I lost my little darling the night they were playing.